RingCentral are the leading cloud communications and collaboration solution for today's workforce. RingCentral integrates your team messaging, video meetings and business phone into one application so your team can do more together from anywhere. For a free trial, visit ringcentral.com.au. RingCentral, communications reimagined. Welcome to the Employees Matter podcast, where we bring you the latest information to help business owners, entrepreneurs and managers manage their team through COVID-19 and beyond. Listen in as we share leading-edge information with experts across a variety of fields, from HR to legal, to negotiation to mental health, and so much more, to help you not just survive, but thrive through the pandemic. And now, here's your host, Natasha Hawker. Sarah Prime is an award-winning thought leader in the field of rural contraction, decline, and exodus, and a champion of change for the rural regions. She is widely known for her leadership development and mentoring framework, Champions Academy, which empowers the next generation of individuals in rural communities to step up and begin actively shaping the future of their community. Her efforts have seen her named Rural Woman of the Year, a Westpac Social Change Fellow and Australian of the Year nominee. Her current project is now seeking to create a global community of interest around rural communities, investigating extraordinary cases of rural revitalization around the world to produce a problem-solving database of proven concepts that rural communities everywhere can be inspired and empowered by. And she is my very welcome guest today. So we see that there are a number of significant themes and changes coming out of COVID for the workplace. And we've been discussing that across the Employees Matter podcast. And as we see them, there's JobKeeper, there's restructuring, redundancy and unfair dismissal. There's population decentralisation, which is what we're going to be chatting about today. There's the individual versus collective employee management, which is a real shift. And then the other one, which is a big passion point for me, is around mental health and, and domestic and family violence. So today we are going to be exploring what I'm calling the population decentralisation theme, and I'm super excited to welcome a previous Australian Rural Woman of the Year, Sarah Prime. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you for having me, Natasha. Very excited to be here. So am I. And we spoke ages about getting this podcast up and running, so I'm thrilled we're actually finally here, and and we're going to cover all sorts of stuff. Um, But I'd love you to start with sharing your story and what you're seeing now um, possibly as a result of COVID. Sure. I can tell you that um, I was a person who actually came from a corporate career in Cairns immediately prior to where I am now. I was the sort of person who would put on my makeup in the morning like war paint and my stilettos and my best shirt and cufflinks as as armour to go to work, you know, masking the fact that I I was, you know, fighting the imposter syndrome every day and um, the fact that I was terrified of not knowing all of the answers and was I in the right job and all of those things that I had worked so hard for, did I really need all this material gain and material wealth? And um, what eventually happened to me was I worked so hard trying to prove myself, probably to myself and no one else, that I became very ill. Mm. And I left my career at what could have been perceived as the peak of my corporate career with all of these opportunities afoot. And I walked away from it. I walked away from a 13-year marriage um, and from someone who I was still very much in love with, but who, in order, you know, for self-preservation, I needed to start a new chapter in my life. And I left Cairns 
clearing the path forward for whatever the next chapter was to happen without any perceived ideas other than I was going on this road trip where I was just going to remember what it was to feel happy and content and at peace with life because I hadn't felt it for such a long time, living in such a heightened state of alert for such a long time. And uh, I came back down to Air Peninsula first um, from Cairns, so mm. across to the centre of Australia and straight down the middle. On your own, a long trip in the car? Well, I actually had my dad with me at that time just for road safety reasons. Um, yeah, yeah, good company, good music cranked up on the on the stereo. And um, my idea was he was going to, you know, drive down with me and then he was going to fly back home and I would continue on around the Great Ocean Road and up the uh, north coast of New South Wales to Yamba. That was where I was hoping to end up. But when I got to Air Peninsula, um, which is where I had originally grown up, I had a car accident very shortly after arriving. So picture me, I'm in this massive Land Rover Defender, this giant beast of a car just sort of endowing through the air And I just remember thinking to myself in that crystal clear moment you have where your life is flashing before your eyes, you know, if this is my end, I'm at peace with that because I can't do this anymore. I'm exhausted. I'm so tired. I'm I'm done. And I really didn't know whether or not I was going to to um, to survive that. But I didn't really. This sounds terrible. I didn't care. I was just relieved if it wasn't something that I had to get up and keep going every day anymore. And as my fate would have it, I landed on my wheels up in some trees, not a scratch on me, not whiplash, not anything, and I walked away from that accident. Wow. Uh-huh. Even though you were spinning through the air. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I, um, I can remember, you know, eskies and camping gear slamming against the back of my, my chair, my head on my chair. I can remember my fishing tackle box smashing against the front window and all of the sinkers flying out and going down the air conditioning vents and just thinking to myself, you know, it was like being in space, all these objects in midair. Um, and, uh, yeah, that air conditioning vent still rattles. With fishing. <laughs> you still got the car. <laughs> I still got the car. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I walked away from that accident and uh, it took quite some time for the insurance to go through and for the car to be fixed because it was a Land Rover parts had to be bought in from all over the place to this tiny little town where I was living in Port Neal. But the very short version of the rest of the story is that I met a local farmer and I fell in love and I never left. Wow. There a, well, that was yeah, crazy. there is a much longer version of the story that I won't bore you with, but it, um, yeah, it, it's a weird story. It's a there's a, yeah, there's an 11-year age gap between us, so it's a very unlikely coupling. Um, I'm the old one. Oh, that's even more unusual. <laughs> it really is. But for some reason, you know, our worlds collided and I never left. You, you know, you know when you know, I met my now husband and three weeks later he proposed, I said yes, and we were married within the year. So Amazing. And no one would have told me I would agree to marry a man I'd known for three weeks. I would have said you've got I'm too sensible for that. But Yep. Sometimes it I happens. totally get that. Well, you can imagine I was certainly not on the lookout for another no. man after what I'd just been through. The last thing on my mind was meeting someone new. But, um, yeah, we were just kind of thrown together. Brilliant. I love that story. So you say further too when I did my research on you that you, you know, you ended up where you are today but you ended up Mm. there by accident. Obviously the car was part of that. The car was the accident, yeah. It was the accident. So tell me where you went from there. Yeah, so I the accident happened here on Air Peninsula and um, Caleb, who is now my husband, um, lived in Warminder. And we, not long after being together, some six months or so, um, happened to move in together on his family farm. 
And one nostalgic day, I took a road trip to Dark Peak where I'd grown up. It's about 45 minutes away. And um, I knew the whole time that I was away, and I'd been back to Dark Peak and I'd seen it, you know, and noticed it was getting smaller and less people. But on this particular day, I went there as someone who lived in Air Peninsula, just 45 minutes down the road, and I saw it through the eyes of someone who lives in the region. And I recognised that it was a ghost town for all intents and purposes. It was, um, there was no traffic on the road, the general store blinds were down and the facade was cracked and peeling, one of the windows was broken. There was some graffiti on a nearby house. The place that I'd grown up in looked like squatters had been living there. And That must have been devastating because we often have very fond childhood memories of our home. Yeah, and I probably could have been accused of having rose-coloured glasses and thinking, oh, I'll go on this trip down memory lane and it'll be lovely. And, you know, having these glorified visions of what life was like in Dark Peak, perhaps perhaps it is glorified in my mind, although I do know that um, as I drove past where the school once stood and it was empty and to this sporting club in the centre of the town, which was like the beating pulse of the community and still is in most rural communities. Mm. The sporting club is like the beating pulse of the community. And the footy and netball teams that I'd grown up in, you know, learning how to be an active contributor to my community, watching my parents take on volunteerism and leadership roles and um, governance positions and things, without that there, I saw that there was no longer this incubator for kids to understand what social cohesion was, to understand what support systems were in a rural network, to understand what leadership development was. Mm. Without that there, how was the legacy of that town ever going to be carried forward? And then as I drove back to Warminder that day, I saw Kyopa, the next town, Rudow, the next town after that, Varen, the next town after that, and then Warminder. And I saw the same pattern of contraction and decline through those fresh eyes And what it looks like is bare patches of ground with rubble that used to be buildings, crumbling grain silos, faded old town limit signs, you know, with the apex and Lions Club and all that, and the old town limit signs with the paint peeling off them that say, slow down, and you think Mm. to yourself, who's slowing down for what? You know, they're speeding through on their way to somewhere else. And then when we got to Warminder, about five k's down the road from where I'm literally living now is the old Warminder school which has a sign out the front that still stands there, which reads, it takes a community to raise a child. Mm. And right next to that is the brown sign that says, Warminder School, open from 19, you know, Mm. closed 2008. And I tell you what, that is the biggest gut punch that that, um, really motivated me to try and use what I had learned in my corporate career to do something locally for my community. And then all of a sudden I'm a social entrepreneur. So what? So for some of our listeners that may not understand what a social entrepreneur is, what is that? Well, it's really a business person with a purpose greater than personal wealth and profit. It's mm. a person who has um, a desire to make a change in the world and they want to reinvest the profits, uh, the profits of the company or the enterprise into creating the change that they want to see. And for me, what that looked like was empowering individuals locally in rural communities, using existing organisations like sporting clubs, teaching them um, leadership development, personal development, governance skills, teaching them how to run their community groups, 
as kind of like a training ground for life mm. to take on other positions of leadership and advocacy in their communities and fighting for their communities, um, really painting them picture for them that I had seen in my eyes. Guys, if you don't give something back, this community doesn't just live by itself. It's not sustainable. Other people have to keep it alive and it's your turn to step up. It needs um, to be nurtured. That's right. And so just a knowledge, I guess, of um, business and entrepreneurship from my corporate career economic development roles that I'd had and also I'd done a lot of mentoring through the Chamber of Commerce and I'd supported not a lot of young people coming up in their careers and I really just used that kind of a channel kind of a coaching mentoring role to empower those individuals locally that became a business once I took on a model of either finding a sponsor to pay for the program or a club who would pay a membership fee to be able to award those scholarships to be involved now is that the Champions Academy Correct, yes. Yeah. So yeah. that became um, what is now known as Champions Academy. That original flagship program was a two-year development process where people would come in the first year and learn. The second year they would become the mentor and a new group would come in under them. And so it was a rolling mentoring program. And that achieved, I guess, a 93% transition rate into positions wow. of leadership, advocacy, volunteerism in the community. We had about 1,200 people through our events um, it was a very powerful experience, but it took a really huge commitment from people who were already really time poor. Yeah. So we ended up transitioning into a school-based model and working with school students through um, through a similar set of ideals, but just in a different set of language, in smaller chunks, and more game-based play learning than sitting down and and having guest speakers come in and that sort of thing. Well, it's working it sounds, quite well. It sounds amazing. So what does it look like today? So today uh, we're in the process of developing a virtual platform called Chat with a Champ so that those very time poor people have access to mentors from all over the world, not just the ones that I can drive to them or fly in locally. We will um, be developing that into a subscription-based model where each week there will be a club champion, a community champion and an ex-gen champion. 52 weeks of the year, Brilliant. you can assign, you know, it's a bit like a TED Talk that's live that you're participating in and you can ask them what it is that you need to learn about and develop in yourself. So these are really high-profile people, whether they're AFL personalities or whether they're um, Australian of the Year type personalities. They could be a media producer. They could be another social entrepreneur, real trailblazers at your fingertips in your own time. And, and I know that they probably get just as much or more out of that experience than what your your members and your kids do, your school kids do. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I, I What I love about the Chat with the Champ idea is that you go where the heat is. Mm. You know, that person who turns up might give their story of how they came to be doing what they do, like I did at the beginning of this mm. podcast interview. But that might be the first 20 minutes of the hour that they've got with that group. That group of people is then leading the conversation and saying, mm -hmm. but what did you do when that happened to you? How did you deal with those feelings? Or who did you turn to when you felt failure? Or where did you go to find the money to do that? And how did you establish that? Have you got any resources you can share with it? Is there an app you use or a website that you found those contact details on? And they can really um, direct that to whatever it is that they need to learn. Um, yeah, so what and you learned about yourself as a result of this Champions Academy? Oh, my goodness. It has been the most incredible learning curve and still is to this day. Um, 
I didn't know what a social entrepreneur was when I started. I thought I was just doing a personal development program. And then I realised that I was really developing a community more so than just a person with each individual in the program and that I had a sheer desire to arrest what I was seeing as this global pattern of rural contraction, decline and exodus. Like it was a real pain point for people in my own community, in other communities nearby, in global communities there is this pattern, um, rural, rural communities getting smaller, shrinking, people leaving, and they call it rural flight overseas as well. And I just wanted to stop that. I wanted to do everything in my power because I know what it feels like to go back and the town that you've grown up in no longer exists. And I know what it feels like to have to drive a long way to put your kids in a school or in rural care. And the people that live in rural communities are doing a really important job, many of them producing the food and fibre that feeds and clothes the world. So why shouldn't they have the same opportunities that more densely populated um, regions do? Mm. And I wanted to do whatever I could to turn the tide. And I know that that's that's an incredibly idealistic view of the world, that there's nothing that I won't do to try and return vitality and opportunities to rural communities because I really do believe that one of the things we're missing in the world today is a sense of community. And if COVID's taught us nothing, it's how important social connection is and social cohesion is for person. And and I think we've seen that, you know, that sense of loneliness that has just been overwhelming for so many people. And I think, you know, a lot of people realised how lonely they were when when suddenly they were locked down and and obviously, um, you know, incredibly challenging for people. Have you been back to those, obviously, those towns close by you now? How do they look now? Yeah, I, I guess there's still, um, there's still people that live around them. Mm. There are still um, activities happening. But the thing is, those places have been and gone past their tipping point of no yeah. return, although there might be change makers in those places Um, what you'll see them doing is more change-making in the next regional town. Mm. So, um, you know, they might be based in Kyopa or Rudau but be doing incredible things for the town of Cleve because that is now their closest, you know, local place that has a, yeah, yeah, a general store, a post office, a a school and possibly a doctor. Mm. Not many rural communities have those these days. No, and we need more of them. Um, so, but by day you're a sheep and wheat farmer. What does a <laughs> typical day look like for you for a city slicker that goes, you know, we were chatting before in the green room, you know, before we went on. I think there's a lot of Australians who would love to see themselves as being, you know, that salt of the earth and that country person. But there's, you know, <laughs> yeah. the reality is there's a lot of city slickers in Australia now. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, perhaps we're all closeted rural people then. Um, Look, an an ordinary day is what I'm doing right now. Um, I'm on a podcast, you know. Like many other working parents, I get up, I take my kids to the table, I feed them, pack their school bags and wherever they need to go for school, rural care, if they're lucky, they're hanging out with their grandparents for the day or if they're really lucky, they're going farming with their dad. Today they're in a shearing shed, so they're on top of the world. <laughs> um, I get to go and put a load of washing on. I send through my local equivalent of the click and collect grocery order, which is a text yep. to Port Neil Post and Trade saying, G'day, gang, can I still get in on time? Da, 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 yep. da, this is what I need. 
And then I go to work five metres from my kitchen with a cup of espresso in my hand. And I sit down, I've got surrounded by Macs and recording equipment and all those sorts of things, just like I would be if I was in a city office. I look at my whip board, which takes up one wall of my office, and I decide what I'm going to work on for the day. And then sometimes I pull my blind down so I'm not distracted by the extraordinary view outside and I get to work. It, it might be uh, might be my husband comes home for lunch, he's been doing whatever he's doing on the farm. We have a bit of a laugh about whatever's gone wrong. He might have fixed a tractor hose with a nice coffee container and seven zip ties because no one locally had the part. That You know, getting on with the day is what it's all about. But, you know, it wasn't that long ago that um, I might have jumped on a plane and just gone to Adelaide for the day because it's only a 40-minute flight away. I still mm. have those meetings when I need to or those appointments when I need to. It's just that you plan them better. You're a lot more organised. Um, and I just have all of these perks in between all of these uh, extraordinary work events because I have the great benefit of living in a rural community. I have all this solitude and space to be able to do my thing. And to create, it's, it's give a busy, I usually say give a busy woman a job because I think so many women are juggling so much with their children as well. Um, you That's know, so I, I was up at 5.20 this morning to get my daughter to gymnastics and then went to the gym and then came back and then, you know, it's just the juggle. You've done well. Yes. yes. It feels like, and then it you'll feels fit like in. wine time now, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> it's too early in the day. Oh, I know, I know. But so I mean, what, the thing is, I think COVID has also opened up that channel for us to, that are working remotely regardless. You know, I'm sitting there having a meeting yesterday with my graphic designer in Cairns, my web developer in Mornington Peninsula, my community manager in Victoria and my data data analytics firm in Victoria. And, you know, those are people that might as well be at the desk next to me because now during COVID we've all understood how easy it is to be able to work remotely. So it really doesn't matter where you base yourself, go where you love to live and make everything else work in around it. That's and that's theory. so true because, you know, the reality is this is, absolutely um, uh, put it on warp speed you know how we can actually work from home and we can attract a better talent pool because they don't have to be five minutes or 15 minutes or 20 minutes down the road they can be wherever in the world and mm -hmm. still provide great support and service so if we focus just a little bit longer on what do you enjoy about being a farmer and what frustrates you yeah, look, it's a tough one because if you're going to be a good farmer, there are times of the year that you absolutely give yourself over to the events of the weather and they are unpredictable and you've got to drop what you're doing and you've got to sow a crop or you've got to reap a crop or you've got to go lambing or shearing. And for people like me, that's a complete pain in the neck because my business doesn't stop turning. No. But you also know that not only, um, you know, for Caleb and I, our personal livelihood depends on him being able to farm and the community wellbeing where we are relies on those industries, those primary production industries. And so you do whatever you can to support a farmer. And like I said, it comes down to being organised, knowing at those times of the year priorities shift. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, so that can be frustrating if you don't plan for it or if something happens that you're not expecting. But honestly, I think um, the, the, the bigger frustration isn't around farming. It's around rural areas not being equipped with the same types of um, information and community technology um, infrastructure and power systems, I think. Um, it's hard to just go and upgrade the entire nation with the latest NBN. We've seen that. Mm. Um, but I think that there are so many emerging opportunities too, especially for things like power networks with renewables. 
that someone with the right kind of smarts is going to come out very far ahead if they can find a way to scale very quickly. Um, so particularly for mobile phone signal, for internet connectivity and for power supply for rural regions, if you're out there and if you're listening and you've got a solution, take the leap because communities everywhere are screaming out for you. Yes, um, oh, absolutely. But all of that aside, I mean, it's a small price to pay for what you get. What I love about rural regions is absolutely everything else, you know. Um, I love the sense of community. I love that I'm sitting here doing a podcast and I can smell the ocean out the window and hear the birds chirping, you know. I love that in a small country town or in a farming district you have this sense of mateship where if you're doing it tough, someone's going to deliver you a meal or just come by and say, hey, I'm going to take your kids for the day so you can have the time that you need to deal with whatever it is you're dealing with. I love the value system of volunteerism and giving without the expectation of something in return. It's this sense of you've got to give back to your community in order to see it survive. Um, and, yeah, I just really love the way people pull together in a crisis. They really do rally and get each other through. And on the flip side of the coin, they know how to celebrate a triumph as well. I mean, if you've ever seen a country sporting club celebrate a grand final, you'll know what I mean. <laughs> Um, they have great pride in their people when they go on to do great things outside of their rural community as well. Um, it's something very special. And I think now as a parent, what I love about living is in a rural community is that you might think that the opportunities are limited, but I see it from a different perspective. I see this boundless freedom to explore and experience life in the, in the very grassroots um, I love that for PE they get surfing lessons and for drama class they're learning on little handmade ukuleles and they're, um, they're just having the most extraordinary um, learning experiences from all this one-on-one -on -one time with their teacher in smaller classrooms. You know, what's not to love about that kind of opportunity for your kids? Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, you know, my concern is for the kids in the city, they're getting more and more sucked into these devices and I'm holding up a mobile phone that are addictive, mm. incredibly addictive and they're losing that ability to just go outdoors and find something to do, you know, mm. and I think in the country, you know, country kids are so far ahead, you know, in terms of that creative space and just going out, making it up. Yeah, they really do. They've got to, they've got to ideate. They've got to problem solve. They've got to be resourceful. Um, you know, they can pick up a stick and turn it into a, an invention of some kind. It's quite funny seeing what they do. Um, yeah, it, it's a thing of beauty living in, in a rural area and kids being able to have that kind of that licence to be able to, to create their own future, I guess. So I also noticed when I was doing the research for this, Sarah, that you have been a mentor in residence. So there's that theme of mentoring, which I love because I think, you know, um, I have a mentor that I have had since I was 18. Um, mm. I'm much older than that now. And she's become a friend. She's been a mentor. She's become a client. She's even worked for me now. Her name's Anne O'Keefe. And I, and I treasure that relationship. And it's been, you know, fundamental to me throughout my career. So I'd love to hear about, you know, the mentor in residence for Westpac Foundation and how you got involved and what that does. Absolutely. Um, I became involved because I was fortunate enough to have been a social change fellowship recipient in 2019. And that was such an incredible experience and certainly uh, a huge leap in my own development as a social entrepreneur. So naturally, I wanted to be able to turn around and pass that knowledge on to someone else. 
I was asked to become a mentor in residence along with um, 20 odd other people. I think there's 25 of us across the country for um, the fellowship streams of future leaders, young techs, um, research fellows, Asian exchange and social change fellows. So we've each got, you know, a small cluster of mentors in residence. And in that role, our job is that we are connected with people who let um, Westpac know that they need assistance or they're looking for guidance. And we might um, connect them or refer them or give them feedback or ask them challenging questions which help them to arrive at their own realisations about what the next steps need to be. We're not there to solve the problems for them. We're not there to give them life advice. We are really there to help them to unearth whatever it is that's a blocker mm. for them. And I think that that's a really important part of being a mentor. Um, it's to know what questions to ask to help the learning to arrive. I don't think the learning happens if you just give people the answers. And quite often you might not know the direct answer anyway, but mm. if you can dig into it and explore an issue together, um, you're really giving them the tools to be able to discover what those next steps are and understand how to get where they want to go. Mm. It's so critical. And I think that that education piece, you know, I've spent thousands and thousands of dollars on my business education. And I've said before, I would not be still sitting here today if I hadn't done that. And I think mm. you really need to invest, you know, through these programs. And there are so many fabulous opportunities like that that don't cost that can be incredibly uh, valuable to, to people. So I noticed you too have completed, is it Alt-MBA? With yes, that's right. I yeah. get his daily newsletter and I love his insights. Tell me about that program. What did you get from that? Oh, it's so cool, so cool. And, and, you know, in a lot of ways it's not dissimilar to the premise of Champions Academy because it is about empowering people to make a leap. Seth calls it to ship. Um, you know, ship it, get it out into the world, you know. What are you waiting for? Press send. Don't don't hold back, you know. Um, and he has a fantastic book called Lynchpin, which you might be aware of. Mm. The Alt MBA really is creating more linchpins in the world, the people who have the skills to deal with ambiguity and to make connections between different elements in a complex situation um, in order to arrive at an idea and drive it forward. You know, it's really about um, putting empathy at the centre of the process, though. Mm. Um, in other words, I guess recognising the impact that we're capable of having on the world by first understanding more deeply the place other people are coming from, what their value systems are and why, what their needs might be, and how what we're putting out into the world could actually be perceived very differently than what we intend it to. Mm. And so in the old MBA, you are put into these different groups of of people and given tasks with unrealistic deadlines I'm you know heads up that's what's going to happen spoiler alert mm. you might have um, a set number of hours to deliver what seems like an impossible challenge but what it's designed to do is to manufacture a state of flow where you just become this super creative genius mm. and uh, I'm not calling any of us geniuses but in the moment you come out with these things that you never thought your brain was possible of and you bounce mm. off of each other and you work together and you become this cohesive um, driver of this project that you could ship and put out into the world. Each individual project um, that you develop as a challenge could be its own business model if you want it to be. And over the five weeks that you do the old MBA, those intense tasks will happen every second day and you are in these intense little groups with people all over the world. You might have, say, five people in your, in your groups. Mm. Everyone's getting a say. And you're constantly challenged and asked, how are you going to turn up? 
how are you going to contribute? Was how are you going to be? Or face to face when you did it? No, that was virtually. Wow. Um, that was before COVID as well. Mm. But what's really interesting about this, and I learned a lot from this this process, was that you might ship a project, and each person in the project has to ship it, but you have to write an individual reflection script the following day after you've reviewed five other people's projects and provided feedback without critiquing it, without giving them answers to the questions they've asked or whatever. You're asking questions that really challenge them. And then you write your reflection script, which is a tack on to the end of your project, which says, if I knew then what I have since learned, this is what I would want to say. And it's not necessarily this is what I would have done differently. It's it's, this is how my thinking has evolved or changed or this is what I'd like to do more on or something like that. And that reflection script is a, is a pretty powerful exercise. Um, so, yeah, you go through five weeks of this and then on one day of the week you have this full day where you work on the project with your team um, and they'll give you a challenge. You know, one of my full-day challenges was come up with 99 business concepts that don't yet exist. Oh, wow. Yeah. Another one was we had to create a global um concept for something that we were passionate about and you know we had this mock website by the end of the day it was phenomenal it's just incredible what you can get done in that time Mm. so let's go back to life in the country and Mm -hmm. I'm seeing a lot of people shipping out of Sydney to put it bluntly one of my team members was in Avalon she's now moved up to Belgium with her family still Mm -hmm. working for me because she can Um, So what do you see are the advantages for people living in big cities to move to the country? And are you seeing more of this as a result of COVID? Yeah. Look, I I spoke to um, someone in real estate just recently locally and I was asking them something similar. I I was sort of saying, look, what are you seeing happening at the moment? Because is it my observation alone or is it a a trend happening across the region that people are leaving um, urban centres and going towards the regions? Like I hear it happening to regional Mm. centres, larger regional centres, but, you know, to out places like this. And he said, Sarah, we have had more inquiries from built-up areas in the last 18 months than the entire years prior to that. He said, now we can't say it's all because of JobKeeper cash. We can't say it's all because of COVID and people having fear of the stress and the the health issues of of close quarters living. It could be that interest rates are also really low. Um, But he said, isn't it an interesting phenomenon that people are wanting to either downsize and go out where there's more space as long as there's a shed for the boat or the caravan or a big backyard for the kids to run around in? Um, And he said it, it... it's probably more people 40 years old and older that they're noticing coming through, and this is across Air Peninsula region, which is on the west coast of South Australia. But he said there is such phenomenal movement because they would field inquiries all day with people who have this spare time on their hands for Googling about all these properties between $100,000 and $200,000. And he said because they look like absolute bargains. He said, and they are, yeah. you know, compared to what city prices are. So, but we've, we've never had the level of inquiries that we're currently getting. Um, but also not just in residential properties, also in agricultural properties from locals wanting to buy um, mm-hmm. and expand their land too. So very interesting. Um, but I, I think we touched on on the main advantages. I think you've got lower cost of living, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. You've got all of this wide open space. And for someone like me who's a bit of an introvert, loves the solitude, loves mm-hmm. the space and the privacy, 
and feeling like you're on your own little island sometimes. Um, you know, our backyard is like a market garden. There's six massive raised beds. We can grow our own fruit and veg, a dozen fruit trees outside the, the fence there. Um, room for things like a trampoline for the kids and mm. all of those small things in life. Um, the the s- smaller classrooms and more time with teachers for kids, those types of things I think are huge advantages. If you're a person with a young family, you know, you're getting those advantages, you're getting the memory-making of living on the of the doorstep of Outback Australia. Mm. If you're a small business person, you've got all these communities crying out for you saying, come and base your business here because we need what you've got. Anyone who's going to offer something locally, we don't want to be shopping online and we certainly don't want to be driving two hours to the next regional centre for our monthly trip. Base yourself here. We want to support you. Um, There are so many advantages to basing yourself locally and I'm not just talking about the view out the office window either. You know, it's it's a real um, rich and fulfilling lifestyle and you cannot put money on that sense of belonging to a community. Um, who welcomes you with open arms. I think that social aspect is so critical, especially with the mental health ramifications of COVID, which are coming and they're going to be long and drawn out. Sarah, do you see that there are any myths that you'd like to bust about living in the country? I think there are so many myths about country Mm -hmm. life. It's hilarious. Um, Lots of cliches and things like that. I I think perhaps there is this, this um, traditional perhaps um, stereotype of of people in the country being a bit slow, mm. a bit slow on the uptake, a bit slow moving. Um, and they met and... you then, have they? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny because the people that I know that live in rural communities are quite the opposite. They're early adopters, they're trailblazing, and just because they talk slow doesn't mean they think slow. They have yeah. very deep thinkers. Um, and when you think about what they've had to do to overcome um, periods of intense drought, commodity prices falling through the floor, all of these massive um, traumas as mm. primary producers, and yet they're still here feeding and clothing our nation. They're doing something right. They've got to be pretty smart business people. Well, um, it's like they, you know, if you think about COVID, that was the city's first sort of instance of having to deal with change and rapid exactly. change where yeah. if you in the country, you've been dealing with that, whether it's a drought or a, a flood or, you know, yeah. towns dying, it's happening exactly. all the time. Oh, for sure. And I think the other thing is, you know, I think about small business and as someone who had um, a career in, in supporting small businesses um, a long time ago, it wasn't common to see a small business that went beyond three family generations. Mm-hmm. It was an extraordinary business whose legacy lasted longer than that. Now, I think if you were to look at most farming families, you will see a minimum of four or five generations. It just, you know, my partner farms with his brother and their dad and his two brothers. And up until 18 months ago, Grandpa Jeff, who at 91 or two was still farming full time, like he wanted to be found socks up in the paddock one day. (laughs) And he said, you you can't tell because half of his face has dropped, but he he said that he wanted to keep, imagine, he said, if I can keep farming to 100, the changes I will have seen. And I thought, mate, the changes you've already seen are yeah. pretty powerful indeed. But that's what I'm saying, you know, they're, they're doing something right. They're, they're, their family businesses are carrying on and a huge number of them have been able to overcome these really troubling times we've had between drought conditions, bushfires, floods, mm. economic conditions. 
you know, they're pretty resilient people and mm. that's something that I'm really proud to be a part of. So, you know, that that's a myth that I that I like to buck. And as far as the stereotype of country people being very traditional and set in their ways, I think you will see that no matter where you go. Mm. And I think as far as tradition goes, it's not mandatory. I love to buck the system, as you well know, and mm. I love to challenge the status quo. And you know what? I think they've got a bit of a taste for it too now. Yes, I think they probably have. So back on housing, are houses mm. available in your area? Have they gone up in price? Well, I haven't seen them go up in price. What mm. I've seen and what was reinforced um, speaking to the real estate guys is that they're probably getting what they're worth now for the first time in a long time. Um, rentals are still really tough to get because mm. towns have this limited basis. People just aren't going out and building houses all the time in small mm. country towns. They're, they're, that happens not all that Is you're going to live there? So, exactly, exactly. So, um, you know, there are houses that are moving very, very quickly once they get on the market. They're getting snapped up. So, um, yeah, the prices are still very reasonable though, particularly the further rural you go the more reasonable you'll get. And here's something interesting that I've been thinking about. You tell me what you think. And listeners, you give this some thought too. I'd love to hear feedback on this. Mm. Farms traditionally have a number of vacant dwellings on them Mm. because over the years as farms have expanded and families have left because jobs were replaced by technology, you know, for a farm to be viable now, it needs to be not just the original block but perhaps the neighbour's block and the Mm. neighbour's block. So... There are a lot of vacant properties that are within Kui of the local town. So we live 15 minutes drive from this idyllic little coastal town of Port Neil. If there are vacant properties, and if you're someone who's considering buying your first home, it's very tough to get into the first home market, no matter where you are these days. Mm. But for a fraction of the price, a renovation budget of perhaps $20,000 compared to a mortgage of $250,000 and upward, you could completely tailor one of these vacant houses to your liking and probably do it in lieu of paying rent for that farmer who's not getting rent out of it anyway and be able to live on this farm as if it was your own backyard. Like to me that seems like a really good win-win. Am I out of my mind? No, I think it's a great idea and I think, you know, you've got a lot of tradies that could be doing that, you know. Uh, It's just a no-brainer. Um, from that point of view and I think I I think that's the lovely thing that's come out of COVID is we're not set in that mindset of well that's a dumb idea that's possible and why aren't we doing that? Totally tradies is a really perfect example do you know how hard it is to get a builder a plumber or an electrician Mm. it is impossible down here you wait for months and months you know if you're in a city and you have a small business that is this know that you'll be in demand when you arrive and if you're looking for a project there you go. I can hook you up with farmers with vacant houses galore. Um, yeah. yeah. It just seems like a great opportunity. It does. And I think, you know, I think it's, I think your mentality needs to change, but it's not necessarily forever. You know, mm. I was, when I was chatting to uh, Zorro on the call before, who's the mayor of Murway, he was saying that he, in, in previous conversation that there's a fella that's moved into the area because his partner or his girlfriend's moved back. And I think she's in uh, pharmaceutical medical stuff. And he's some sort of tradie. He's got six to twelve months' work backed up. Yeah, you know yeah. he's never been so busy, and it's all his. You know, so I think there's a real opportunity for people who want to branch out and and you know explore a different part of the world to live in. It may not be your forever place, 
or you may go there and never ever come back you know it's absolutely I'm I'm evidence that that's possible <laughs> exactly exactly so uh, tell me about what could the state or federal government do that would help you and your community yeah look I, I would have a wish list as long as your arm Natasha I really would um, there are a few different things that I think that they could do. Um, obviously, things like the mobile phone, internet, and um, the the power supply is a is a problem to be fixed. It's creating pain points. I'm also aware of the vast expense and mm. the logistical problems with that. If there is something they could do to subsidise that, so that entrepreneurs can capitalise on those opportunities in rural areas, I think that is a shortcut to fixing the problem, not in the bad way. Mm. Um, if there is a way that they can incentivise rural innovation, entrepreneurship, and small business to establish systems of um, yeah innovation and entrepreneurship locally, or contribute to them, or grow them, or scale them, um, I know that there are through different um, channels, you know, small bits of support that are available. But if this was a really big driver, I think you would see rural regions revitalised in ways that you don't expect because I really do believe that entrepreneurship and innovation in rural communities um, has a massive power for um, catalyzing change for the country, not just for their own region. For me personally, um, I think recognition of the fact that rural contraction, decline and exodus is almost a state of, of emergency. Yeah. I was trying to apply for a um, public benevolent institution status or and in the process of applying for it. And to fit into particular categories um, for PBI, it was very difficult to explain, but um, I'm here to support, you know, this, this trauma in rural communities, this distress. And they're saying, yes, but you're helping communities. What are you doing for individuals? I'm saying, but you don't understand the distress mm. on individuals is... It's not like a bushfire or a flood or a, um, a drought where there is a temporary period where they are in distress. This is all the time. People who are losing their livelihoods in rural regions because services have been withdrawn, because these towns are falling into a state of decline and decay, that's a permanent state of distress. If they have to uproot their family and move elsewhere because there is no longer a foreseeable opportunity and they've got to go elsewhere for health or education or employment, like that's being disconnected from their social um, networks. That's trauma for the kids. That's displacement. So if the government was able to put into wording that the state of rural contraction and decline and exodus is the equivalent of a state of hardship such as a bushfire or a, you know, a flood or a drought and that the hardship and the distress and the suffering is equivalent, it would make it much easier for businesses like myself to spend less time trying to get through red tape and tick the right boxes and jump through the right hoops and more time actually doing the work that we can create meaningful change in. Um, and I guess another thing that Australia um, is probably in need of doing is recognising social enterprise hybrid structures as a legal corporate structure rather than people having to, you know, work through either a, a public company limited by guarantee or become a charity, you know, those sorts of things. So I think there's some work to be done there, but I think it's it's doable. I think it's one of those great examples of that role exists, that business exists now, but the structure doesn't exist for it. So, mm. you know, we need to move quicker, I think, in, in that space. Um, so tell me, what are your plans for the future? 
Well, I'm actually working on a very exciting project at the moment uh, with a team of people about um, global rural contraction and decline. We're building a database of locally developed solutions to common rural challenges and putting them um, up for the world to see as case studies of if your community is going through this, here's some information for you. Here are the people that did this project. This is how it turned out. Um, And this is called the Global Rural Community. So it's going to be a free platform that any rural community can search on, either share their own projects and say, hey, we did this and it worked for us, or they can put in their own, um, you know, community demographics and things like that and say, I'm looking for a community this size. Are there any solutions to these problems? Um, yeah, that's that's pretty much the project that we're working what on at the moment. A fabulous idea. And um, what I'm going to get you to do is to pass all this stuff on to us and we'll pop it in the show notes so that people can see how that is going. But, you know, I'm a great uh, believer in and the collective is much better than us as individual parts. And I just love that idea. I think that's brilliant. So thank you. Sorry, go on. Uh, so um, who, if I had a magic wand, Sarah, and I could grant you one wish, what would you want that wish to be? Social revolution, I think. Tell me what social revolution <laughs> means to you. I think it, for me that means for courageous people to make the leap to populate rural Australia to inspire new ecosystems of innovation and entrepreneurship, um, to to take on the challenge of those complex problems to be solved, to invent cutting-edge new industries, for them to come here and have young families that fill our schools, for them to come here and establish their businesses and um, create that ability to be able to shop locally. Um, That's what social revolution means to me, for people to want to live in rural communities and for people who don't want to, um, for them to realise that rural communities are still relevant and they are worthy and the people that live there deserve to thrive. That's that's what I'd wish for. That's amazing. That was great. One last question. Who has been your best boss to date and what made them so wonderful? This one's tough because a lot of my life I've been working on my own and I can't give myself kudos for being a great boss because I'm a bit of a cow sometimes. <laughs> and you're probably the hardest taskmaster you I, I do. I do have very high expectations of myself and I crack the whip. Look, I, I would like to reflect on the time that I spent, and it's not necessarily the boss that I had, but the culture that was created by the firm that I worked for um, when I was starting out at a public accounting firm, I worked for WHK who were Hall Chadwick before that and William Buck before Mm. that in Cairns. And I had um, a really incredible development experience there. I started out as an undergrad corporate governance auditor, Mm -hmm. flying around to all of the islands around um, Torres Strait Islands and Cape York and auditing communities. And it is the best training ground for a person in business You learn all about the different systems and controls and operational aspects. You learn how to deal with clients. You learn what works and even more so what doesn't work. And to be able to be given that opportunity as my first ever corporate gig for a public accounting firm, I felt absolutely stoked. I didn't realise that it was kind of like the rough end of the stick that I didn't get to start in the tax office or something like that. But it was very cool and what it enabled me to do is to become someone who thought very much about problem solving and for that constant desire to want to fix the problems that I recognised as an auditor, 
I was seconded into the special projects and business advisory team, which led me into amazing experiences that weren't everyday things. Um, I got to help with startups and joint ventures and create new business opportunities. I get to I got to do all sorts of things that weren't ordinary for a person of my age. And that's sort of held me in good stead to continue the career in economic development. I think what I reflected on most when I thought about um, your question, you know, a great boss, was that in every role, and whether it's within the employment sect or people that you deal with in the networks around your professional employment, it is the ability to recognise people as mentors. And mentors are very powerful in how they teach you either what to do or what not to do. Mm-hmm. And so some of the most powerful memories that I have of lessons learned from mentors were things that people did that resulted in an epic fall from grace or a massive leap forward Mm. and, you know, storing that little nugget of information away about how they handled a situation in a time of crisis or how they brought others with them when they led and how they built everyone up around them to see them succeed. So a shout-out to everyone who's ever been a mentor for me. Mm. Thank you. I still use the information that you shared with me, the experiences that you gave me and the knowledge that you've embedded within me, whether you knew that you were doing that or not. Mm. Um, I think perhaps some of the most powerful experience was were ones that taught me about human behaviour because it's relevant across every single task in life and certainly relevant to me now as a parent as well, trying to figure out those little aliens who are apparently yes. my children. <laughs> yeah, they're good guys and they're bad guys. It occurred to me when you were chatting about that first role that you had in the accounting firm, what, what a brilliant experience because you had to build relationships and trust mm-hmm. very quickly, especially as the auditor because everyone used oh, to hate totally. the auditor. So yeah. the skills that you would have got from a people perspective there, um, I, I imagine, and, and just even from talking to you have served you incredibly well. Oh, well look, thank you. My pleasure. Look, I have had so much fun chatting with you and learning about what's happening in your part of the world. And I know you do speaking gigs and I think, you know, you are inspirational and, and a lot of people would get some value about getting you to come into their organisations and talk to their people. If people do want to reach out and get in touch with you, Sarah, what's the best way to connect with you? Oh, thank you. That's very kind feedback. And I would love to to support anyone um, in a speaking role or a mentoring role or otherwise. Um, my website is sarahprime.com. Uh, if you email me from there, it comes directly to my inbox, not to some kind of an autobot. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, just reach out, tell me what it is that, that I can support you in, whether it's a graduate development program or a conference keynote or um, any kind of, of copy that you need for articles, things like that. Very happy to support people in those sorts of um, engagements. Brilliant. Thank you. That has been wonderful. Um, If you've enjoyed this interview, you will also enjoy our interview with Leanne Pilkington, who knows everything about real estate. We can continue that real estate conversation about what's really going on with house prices. They're just going bananas in Sydney at the moment. Um, Thanks for listening. And if you did enjoy this episode, please remember to subscribe. I'm Natasha Hawker. And remember, your employees really do. I hope that you've enjoyed today's episode of Employees Matter Podcast with Natasha Hawker. For episode notes and other resources, please visit employeematters.com.au forward slash podcast. While you're there, you might like to subscribe for future episodes so you can continue to thrive during the COVID-19 crisis. Please be sure to share this and other episodes with your friends, team and business network. This podcast was proudly brought to you by Ring Central.